Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast are my two co-hosts, Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Professor Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Joe, Luke, great to have you on the broadcast. Great to be back with you, Brian and Luke. Looking forward to our time together today. Great as always. Glad to be on. And and gentlemen, I've got great news. Um, I just uh, logged on to our analytics with the, the people who host our podcast, and I discovered that we now have 10 countries, um, listeners in 10 different countries. So congratulations to Luke and Joe for doing such a great job and providing great content. And we thank all of our listeners, both here in the United States and the 10 countries abroad who are tuning in to get solid um, answers to some of the big questions of the Christian faith. So we do thank you um, on behalf of Luke, Joe, and myself. So that's, that's great. But if you're new to the broadcast, you may not know that we've focus on apologetics for this semester, and we use Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. But of course, if you've listened to the podcast, you are well aware of that. On our last episode, we answered the question, are miracles possible? And if you missed that episode, I do encourage you to give it a listen. This week, we're answering the question, can the New Testament be trusted? As one would expect in a world antagonistic to Christian claims, there are many critics of the Bible. Generally, the criticism falls within four broad categories. One, historical inaccuracy. Two, scientific inaccuracy. Three, internal inconsistency. And four, moral inconsistency. And here's how the American Humanist Association summarizes some of these arguments. They claim the Bible was, quote, written solely by humans in an ignorant, superstitious, and cruel age. They believe that because the writers of the Bible lived in an unenlightened era, the book contains many errors and harmful teachings, end quote. So, Joe, Luke, to say the least, we have our work cut out for us on this episode. And let me also let our listeners know, to be clear, on today's broadcast, we're going to focus mainly on the reliability of the New Testament, though there will be some overlap with the Old. A future broadcast may focus on the Old Testament exclusively, but most of the arguments made today um, will apply to the New Testament, though, as I said, there will be some crossover with the Old Testament as well. So, with that... Let's begin. Joe, we'll start with you. Simple question. Why is this topic important? Why is it important for our listeners and Christians to trust that the New Testament is reliable? Well, it's important to all Christians because if we can't trust the Bible, then we can't trust God since the Bible is God's word. Uh, Just as somebody can lie repeatedly or or be very unreliable or inaccurate, then we start to question their character, perhaps, or we we can't trust them to be 100% correct every time. 
But as the Christian looks at the scriptures, we come to the doctrine of inspiration, the fact that God breathed out his word, it's a reflection of his mind, and the doctrine of inerrancy that follows from inspiration, because God is perfect. He doesn't make errors. And the logic to support the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture simply says, God cannot err, he's perfect. And the Bible is the word of God, This means that the Bible cannot err. So if the Bible's in error, it impugns the nature of God himself. It tells us something about his character and about his perfections, namely that it's fallen short. And if it's fallen short, how can we trust him in telling us the truth about salvation or anything else? And then secondly, if we can't trust the Bible in historical and scientific matters, then how are we going to trust it in spiritual matters? And this is what John 3.12 tells us when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus. He said, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, the principle there is clear in that if we can't uh, come to truth when the Bible speaks about historical or scientific matters, how, how are we ever going to come to truth or believe Jesus, what he says about the spiritual world, the things we can't put in a test tube, the things that we can't monitor under the microscope. See, we give it the benefit of the doubt because all the historical issues check out. And then finally, we need to realize that history and doctrine are connected. In other words, our doctrines flow out of historical events. It flows out of real people, real events, real geography, and so forth. And I love what Paul says in Romans 4. Uh, He tells us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And it gives us two doctrinal points that are crucial, uh, forgiveness of our trespasses and our justification. But it says he was delivered up. That's the historical part of the doctrine. Unless Jesus was delivered up to the cross and was put to death on the cross for our sins, then we have no forgiveness of the trespasses, the the spiritual doctrine that we benefit from that historical event. Or we have to forfeit justification, being right with God, being one with God, if he's not raised uh, from the grave in a resurrection. So notice how the Bible places both the history and the event, and out of those historical events comes the cherished and precious doctrines that we all uh, have come to believe in who are Christians. So this is vitally important for all Christians. Yeah, and and, and that's such a, a wonderful, robust answer. I, I appreciate that. And, and as you just concluded, Joe, I mean, this is vitally important. This, this is a foundational uh, topic for believers. If we can't trust the Bible, then, then what, what are we, what can we trust, you you know, as, as Christians? Well, let's, let's go uh, to the next question. And this one's for you, Luke. Uh, If the Bible is God's word, as, as Joe is, is, is saying, can't it defend itself? Why, why, why do, why, why do we infallible human beings need to, to defend the Bible? Um, what's our skin in the game, so to say? Why why do we need to defend the Bible? It's a great question because it's something that's used a lot of times to try to keep people from speaking out in support of Scripture. So I do want to point out that 
the idea of defending something doesn't mean that that which is being, quote, defended, unquote, is incapable of standing on its own two feet or is somehow weak. Because we're speaking in the abstract. When we're defending something, really what we're doing is explaining its reasonability. We're making an explanation for where it rests and why it is so accessible. That's If I were to say, well, should I defend the practice of nuclear physics? Well, I would have to explain to people particularly why it's a positive discipline, how it benefits them, how we can know of its reliability as in in context with the study of physical matter. In speaking of the scripture, and, and Joe spoke to this so clearly, is when Jesus spoke of spiritual things and, heaven, and, and earthly things, he sought to draw that analogy. But he made it very clear that there are spiritual elements of the scripture that do indeed flow out of real historical events. And therefore, to understand the spiritual aspect that is tied to those physical realities, one would then explain the reality of the Word of God in a way that captures someone's imagination and ties it to things that are logical, that are rational. So this is sort of what we speak of when we say, can it defend itself? We're not saying that the assertions that the Word of God makes can be entirely defended evidentially, but rather that the ability of Scripture to have the right to make those assertions can be defended by all the things that are tied to it that we can speak to. And this is what we would call evidence. Even though we're not in the place of God to pop out of the sky and create a miracle right in front of somebody in order to, quote, defend the Scripture, we can look at the record of all those things that he has done exactly like that as a means to establish the veracity of the Word of God. So if we aren't, quote, defending it, unquote, um, the question would be, well, what else are we doing? It's the idea of giving a reason for why it ought to be believed. So good. And and really, I think what you're both saying here is, is the defense and the importance of the topic is connected to truth that what we're proclaiming corresponds to how things really are. They correspond to the facts, be it in history or spiritual matters. So truth matters, as we talked about in an earlier broadcast. So it's important that we defend or uphold that which is true. Would you both agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Joe, let's now turn to the next question. And I get this a lot. Um, as a matter of fact, I know a couple of years ago there was a, a notable I think he was a musician or or singer, something of that nature. When when asked about religion, he he said, "Well, I don't believe the Bible because it's so old. Why would I tr- put my trust or uh, faith in something that old?" So my question is, being that the New Testament is over two thousand years old or roughly two thousand years old, how can we trust something that's from antiquity? Well, we do the same thing that all historians do, and that is analyze the text. But we need to be clear up front that antiquity doesn't determine veracity. Age doesn't determine whether something is truth. If that were the case, then the Vedas of the Hindus would be much older than the New Testament, and they would be considered more true than the New Testament and so forth. So there are old there are old uh, lies and there are old truth and there is new truth and there's new lies. And, um, you know, 
old truths and and new lies don't make uh, the New Testament anything other than what it actually is. It claims to be the Word of God. Thy Word is truth, John 17, 17 says. And secondly, uh, we have good copies of this uh, book called the Bible. They have been transmitting and copying and going word for word for some 2,000 years now since the original documents were penned. Um, The quality of the copying process is 99% uh, plus in its accuracy of the copying, and we know that because we're comparing old manuscripts with new manuscripts, uh, which have been going and been copied through the centuries. And you can just compare the manuscripts and you can see the very little deviation. And then when I mean deviation, it is like a fraction of, of uh, the total count of words that are in a document and sentences and so forth. And those deviations are simply minor. They're slips of the pen from the scribe when he gets tired. They're repeating a verse twice. Uh, there's omitting a phrase because um, the the person's eyes skip back to a similar phrase on the same line that he was copying from. None of these have any bearing on any major doctrine uh, whatsoever. In fact, the New Testament is the number one transmitted copy from the ancient world. There is nothing better than the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament has over 5,800 Greek manuscripts that attest to its accurate copying. So that means that we know we're getting the document that the original author penned some 2,000 years ago. Uh, The embellishment didn't creep in because they took their job seriously and they considered handling the Word of God a high priority, and ultimately they they did a fantastic job. The second best document out there today is Homer's Iliad that has about 2,000 manuscript copies, and they have about a 95% accurate copying rate from uh, the original and so forth. So, Homer's Iliad is a very distant second place when it comes to the reliability and the accuracy of the text itself, the transmission of the message, so to speak. In fact, um, I can even go a step further than that. We have manuscripts that are so close to the original writing of the New Testament, some 30 to 300 year gap from the original to our first manuscript. In fact, I can mention the John Ryland's fragment also called P52, written on papyrus, a little four-inch by four-inch document written on both sides. Uh, It is only 30 years or so removed from the actual writing of the Gospel of John, and it contains a portion of John chapter 18. So the transmission is the highest in the ancient world. It is accurate because we can compare with other manuscripts. We have the most quantity of manuscripts that assures an accurate reproduction of the original, and there is no other document from the ancient world. In fact, you can even look to the Dead Sea Scrolls and compare our Old Testament uh, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are much earlier, some 1,100 years earlier than our oldest Old Testament uh, document that we had, and it was 95% plus 
uh, identical to our later manuscripts. And that 5% of difference, again, is slips of the pen, spelling mistakes, very minor variants that can be easily solved with common sense. Yeah, what, what we would call scribal error Scribal those errors. Error. Yeah, that's right. Thank, thanks for that uh, answer, Joe. Very, very good. And this kind of piggybacks my next question on on that. Um, and Luke, I'll, I'll direct it to you. And I've heard this 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 question, this criticism come up, and it's inferred with a, a gentleman we've mentioned before on our podcast, Bart Ehrman. He mentions in one of his books, and and the the argument goes something like this: We don't have the original documents, so we don't have Paul's letters. We don't have the the original documents of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't have John's epistles, and you know you could fill in the blank. And because we don't have the original documents, we we can't really trust these these uh, letters or or other forms of of you know gospels and what have you, um, because we can't compare and contrast with the original. And so not only do they use this against inerrancy, well it, it can't be inerrant because God didn't see fit to hold on to the original documents. And not only that, all these other quote-unquote problems, scribal errors, and, and what have you come into play. So that's Bart Erdman's, one of his his arguments. So my question to you, Luke, is can we trust something that we don't have original copies of? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I think that it's much more easily solved than Dr. Erdman would like to admit. But we have something of a common argument against scripture that happens with this, whether it's uh, the proof of miracles, eyewitness accounts that is often used by the historical community. And Richard Dawkins actually makes a similar argument against eyewitness material or eyewitness evidence and doesn't do so really in a balanced manner. It's They're saying, well, because people are fallible, then the things that people see can be different than the things that other people see. And therefore, because nobody ever sees or thinks the same thing, therefore, you don't necessarily have any level of reliability in eyewitness testimony. Nevertheless, there have been mechanisms that were developed particularly to offset, and in some cases, entirely or nearly entirely mitigate the effect of, quote, being human on objective truth. We find the same argument can be applied to something like this. The idea here is that people make mistakes when they're copying, they add stuff, and certainly we can point back to history where that has happened. In Alexandria, they say Origen added as much to the text as he took away. And, you know, these things have been preserved for us by history. We can observe ourselves in the progress of the Middle Ages when the scribal revival happened and many ancient documents were brought back to life as the 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 copies of the Old Testament that Joe was talking about with the, the Masoretic sect and the way that they copied things. And so while many documents were found and revived and then studied intensely in the 19th century and methods being developed to try to offset for that, many ways in which texts could accumulate errors were discovered. And there are a number of them that are codified 
and Joe referenced them sort of in a, in a superficial manner because he was speaking to a separate aspect. But these types of errors are known and they're able to be found. And so the scriptural documents probably scrutinized more than any other document, not just because there's more of them, but because of the weight that rests upon whether or not they're true. These things have been applied with probably more rigor than any other ancient document, and the scriptures have survived this. One of the things that we know about in particular is even if we didn't have all of those items, we have other documents that are comprised of the, the church fathers, just their quotes of scripture in their writings, which we can very clearly verify as being from them, can reconstruct the entirety of the New Testament with just a handful of verses left out. There are more than one way, there is more than one way to establish the veracity of Scripture. And number one, we have the existence of older copies. We know that this wasn't made up because of how widespread it was. And because of the agreement that is found, despite how widespread it is, there's no way that any one group was able to have control over all of the copies. And yet, even where we can observe a lack of quality or a decline in quality in certain eras, certain scripts, certain geographical locations, the, the beautiful thing about that is that we can identify it. And we can also identify the ones that do not follow in those footsteps that have preserved a very excellent tradition of copying. And that's that's how we can know if we can trust it, is if we have an excellent tradition of copying that holds up under scholarly scrutiny for textual apparatus and for the known types of transmission errors and the accumulation of errors, we can demonstrate that. And we can stand it up against any other document that's been scrutinized, which is where Joe got those percentages from. Those come from critical scholarly textual editions of those documents that have gone through and done the legwork of comparing all of these different texts that exist and then compiling that information into critical editions of these texts, many of which exist for the scriptures. So it's not... I know that most of the public domain, they don't necessarily get down into the weeds to find that out, but those answers are there. Those questions can absolutely be resolved and have been on the scholarly level, even though, as some have pointed out, many scholars who know better will nonetheless write a popular volume that seems to point to these unresolvable, inconceivable number of errors in the Bible, when yet they themselves know better it still gets public traction to make people have a reason to not like the Bible. We found that none of those things exist when the scrutiny has been given, and therefore we can trust a document even without its originals because of the quality of the copying that's happened and the critical scholarship that's been applied to it. Yeah, and, and my analogy here obviously will fall apart because, you know, a copy machine is different from scribes. But kind of what you're saying, Luke, is that we may not have the originals, but we have photocopies of the originals that we could then see how this photocopy has transferred, you know, down down the line. And using critical scholarship and and deep insight, we could compare with the photocopies, if you will, 
um, throughout time and, and get back to a very precise, as, as Joe pointed out, 99% plus percent accuracy rate. So we, we don't need the original copies when we have so many great, again, using modern terminology, photocopies, if, if you will, or scribal copies. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Great, great answer as normal. Joe, so, so I'm going to turn it back to you now, and we're going to tackle the first of, you know, the, the four areas that, that um, most criticism falls, and I said these four broad areas. So let's tackle, is the New Testament historically reliable? And, and just to give our listeners, you know, some, I'll just give a couple examples. Some people have critiqued Acts chapter five, saying Luke, the author of Acts, had his history wrong and his chronology wrong, particularly regarding Thaddeus and Judas. Another example that's often given as far as uh, you know, poor history. Uh, people like to say Matthew and Luke have different birth narratives, and therefore they had different names that weren't historically uh, alignable within their text. So, Joe, not that we have to proof text everything and, and answer all these these uh, scripture verses, but the generally, is the New Testament historically reliable? Absolutely. It, it definitely is. And uh, we'd say that not in a vacuum, but because there's good reasons for it. But for the sake of our listeners, when we ask if the New Testament is reliable, there's two questions that comes up. One is, is the text reliable? Has it been transmitted accurately, which we've already answered? And then secondly, is it historically reliable? In other words, the events, the people, the places, the geography that it mentions in the text, are those events reliably and trustworthy to believe in? And the answer is yes. Why? Because we have eyewitnesses. We have people who saw these events, who met with these rulers, who understood the geography of the Holy Land and throughout Israel and the surrounding countries. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that there are over 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus's resurrection alone. And Paul goes on to say that the greater number of these 500 are still alive today during Paul's life. So that means 250 plus people were still around to write down, to understand, to talk, to consult with about all these events that are recorded in the four Gospels. So eyewitness testimony is very, very important. In fact, our modern judicial system puts a high value on eyewitnesses. And then secondly, you have extra biblical history that confirms certain events and people and places that are mentioned in the Gospels. You have the Roman historian Tacitus, who chronicled uh, the histories and the annals of imperial Rome, and he makes reference to Christ and to Pontius Pilate and to these various, uh, the spread of Christianity from Christ and so forth. You have Suetonius, another Roman historian. Uh, these people work for the Roman government writing history, and he talks about Claudius and about the Jews being expelled from Rome, as we saw in the book of Acts. Uh, you have modern historians who specialize in in ancient history, like Greco-Roman history, such as A.N. Sherwin-White, who 
has uh, written all kinds of books on the reliability of the biblical text, especially the book of Acts, when it comes to getting history right. And then you have Colin J. Hemmer, another modern historian who writes on the book of Acts and argues for a date between 60 and 62 AD, and he has a laundry list of features within the book of Acts, such as the kind of language that was spoken, the certain slang words that were given, uh, the port, um, the cross, the, the crossing from one area to another geographically. He lists them out in detail in his books. Uh, just amazing. And then you have the Jewish historian Josephus, who actually writes all kinds of information about Jesus, about James, uh, about the early church, and about the events that were going on uh, during the late first century, the mid-first century, and even the early first century. And Josephus was beloved by both Jews and by the Romans uh, because he was a former general for the Jewish army who surrendered to Rome. Rome was so impressed with Josephus, they put him to work writing history uh, for them. So you have these wonderful features outside of Scripture that corroborate and consistent with what we're reading about in Scripture. And this isn't even to mention the whole field of archaeology, who has unearthed all kinds of artifacts, such as the Pontius Pilate stone. They've excavated the Pool of Bethesda and the Pool of Siloam of John chapter 9 and John chapter 5. Um, all kinds of wonderful things. In fact, a recent popular uh, archaeological find was the James Ossuary. Several years ago, they found a limestone bone box dating to the first century with an Aramaic inscription written on the side that says, James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And they put that through the most deep-level scrutiny to authenticate the inscription, and it came through with flying colors. And this and other things that have been collecting over the centuries of excavation have just shown the remarkable consistency between the Bible and what they're digging up out of the ground. So yes, we can say that the Bible is historically reliable. And if I might piggyback on Luke's response uh, to the fact we, we don't have the original copies, I just loved his response. And and I just got to thinking that the fact that we have multiple manuscripts in our hands from different families of scribes copying these manuscripts spread all over the world and in all these different universities, it serves as a security feature for the scriptures that nobody can change the Bible. So we don't have to worry about that because they'd have to change every one of the thousands of manuscripts that are in existence today spread all over the world. That's a great, great uh, add-on there, Joe. Thank you. And thank you for mm -hmm. that, that answer. So Luke, now I'm going to turn it over to you to address the second broad area that people criticize the Bible, and that's its scientific inaccuracies. Now, we know that the New Testament has much, much less than what people point to in the Old Testament. But you will hear every now and then someone will say, well, you know, Matthew 4.8 says that people or angels are standing on the four corners of the earth. Therefore, the New Testament's teaching that there's a flat earth. And I've heard others say, well, in Revelation 6, that the stars fall from the sky. Well, 
they'll claim any modern scientists know that the stars are billions of miles away and they're not going to fall from the sky. I've even heard, you know, people critique Matthew 13, 32, where Jesus uses uh, the mustard seeds and, and, and says it's the smallest of seeds. And so they'll say, well, see, uh, scientifically, there's, there is a seed smaller. Therefore, the Bible's scientifically or the New Testament is scientifically inaccurate. So, uh, Luke, how would you respond to these critics? And is the New Testament scientifically reliable? Well, again, a great question. And of course, the Bible is scientific reli- scientifically reliable. I think it all comes down to a couple of different matters of interpretation. The theological interpretation of the scriptures and the way in which its information fits into that context, it's good to point out that that it wasn't intended to be a scientific textbook. So we're not saying that to muddy the waters to try to provide ourselves plausible deniability about scientific flaws in the Bible. What we're saying is that the Bible wasn't written to be a science lecture. So much of what we find, particularly in the New Testament, are truths on the order of what we would call naive reality. The things that were assumed by the New Testament writers that incorporated themselves into its work, the backdrop, as we don't find in many apocryphal writings, there's no description outside of the eschatological, which is a separate matter I'll get to in a moment, but there's no assumptions in scriptures of these augmented realities that we often find in apocryphal works that are clearly the work of imagination and dreams. We, we find no exceptionality to things like, hey, if someone walks on water, that's a miracle. Well, how would that be possible? Well, because they're assuming the normal properties of the physical realm. Wine turned into water, or water turned into wine. A normal assumption that it required divine power to make a transition, which then assumes implicitly the normality of the existing environment. And and there's so many things like this. Marriage is another thing like that. The Bible talks and goes back to the Old Testament about male and female created he them. This is a biological truth. But the Bible doesn't delve deeply into exactly what it is with the chromosomes and their order that creates the separation between the sexes. Yet it still implies and and teaches these things by way of assumption. And so there's there's many things like this, like you addressed with, you know, the angels standing on the four corners of the earth. This doesn't mean that the earth is square. There's also room for idiomatic interpretation and prophetic imagery that has great significance. And when one comes at that from what I would call, and not to be at all mean-spirited, but I believe there's something of deliberate obtuseness, because the folks that make these accusations are not unintelligent. And they know that there is more than one perspective in which they can be considered, and yet they may stubbornly stick to a particular perspective because it suits their opportunity to sort of hurl aspersions at the scripture. But suffice to say, for every objection that is raised, it is often a matter of perspective and tools of interpretation. They're using a scientific method that they and they need to be implicit in scripture in order to be able to condemn its statements as being inaccurate. Whereas the theological side says the Bible's not a scientific textbook, and these fit very clearly within the context, 
and through their assumptions, confirm the scientific reality of the Bible, reliability of the Bible, without having to teach someone the singular delineations of any scientific method. That's not what it was written for. But we don't find that it contradicts science, nor that it asserts something that cannot be verified scientifically when it comes to the material realm. Mm, great answer. Great, great answer. Thank you for that, Luke. Well, Joe, let's now go to the third major criticism, um, again, these broad categories, but internal inconsistency. And I've heard people say, well, the Bible itself is internally inconsistent. And, and they'll say something like, well, take, for example, the birth narratives. There's a different birth narrative from Matthew than there is in Luke. Or they may point out that, hey, the different gospels seem to indicate that Jesus was crucified on a specific day, contrary to the other gospel. So my question to you, Joe, is the Bible internally consistent? Is there anything within the New Testament that really stands out as, boy, this is an inconsistent um, anomaly that we need to address? Well, when you come to internal consistency, I think every system desires internal consistency, whether it is a fictitious system or whether it is the Bible and its system communicating truth. Because without internal consistency, that means there's internal contradictions. And then you have, uh, you can dismiss the system itself as being uh, not inerrant and not inspired uh, by the Lord. But the Bible has a high bar to pass, and it must be internally consistent. And there has been nobody in the history of the world in Bible scholarship that has shown where the Bible is in error in any parts of the place. Yes, there's difficulties that we can reason through, but most of those difficulties are even solved by simply uh, using common sense and piecing together the different narratives we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For example, Jesus's narrative of his birth. Uh, many say that there's a discrepancy in Luke and between uh, it and Matthew, and it says that after Jesus was born, according to Luke, they went to the temple, they offered what was required by the Lord, and then they returned to their town of Nazareth immediately. But in Matthew, it says that after Jesus was born, they had fled to Egypt, not mentioning the temple at all, whereas Luke doesn't mention the flight to Egypt at all. And what do we say to that? Well, you combine the two narratives together, and most likely the best answer is that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph went to the temple to offer what was required of them after the birth, and then they went to Egypt, and then coming back from Egypt, they went to Nazareth, where Jesus was raised from then on. In fact, you can go to other uh, difficulties like... Um, in, in Luke and Matthew, again, the birth narrative revolving around Jesus's father, Joseph. You see, in Matthew, it says that his father was Jacob, and in Luke, it says his father was Heli. And the best answer to resolve that is that the Greek language doesn't have a Greek word for son-in-law. It doesn't have a word for father-in-law. And so when it says in Luke that Jake, uh, Joseph's father was Heli, it's better 
to understand that as Joseph's father-in-law, and Joseph would be his son-in-law, was hilly, because Luke describes Mary's lineage, whereas Matthew describes Joseph's lineage that descended from Solomon. So many of these can be worked out through common sense. They don't have to be belabored, but yes, the Bible is internally consistent. Uh, There's no reason to doubt what it says about itself or about history. Mm, A great answer, and thank you for bringing up those two points, because those are obviously two scriptures that uh, kind of be are the hallmarks of of criticism there. Let's move now to the the fourth and final major broad category that people say that you can't trust the New Testament, and that's moral inconsistency. I've heard someone such as Elizabeth Anderson, um, you know, she's she is a feminist who, and again, not downing feminism here, but just saying she has a feminist ideology that sees Paul's actions towards women uh, untenable. Um, so that's that's one one angle. But but generally speaking, examples that we find is is someone would say, well, the New Testament's inconsistency because Jesus says to love God and love people. And so it's all about love, and and that's re, that's again referenced in other scripture texts. But then they'll say, but in Revelation we find God, who's supposedly a God of love, killing large swaths of humanity. So how do you reconcile this God of love, aka what Jesus and you know Paul and others said, with this God of justice and war found? in Revelation. So I guess the the simple question, Luke, is, is the New Testament morally consistent? Well, absolutely, Brian. And, you know, this is one of the the common assertions that's made, goes all the way back to, as at least we're aware of it, at, at the very least in the second century with someone like Marcion, who subscribed to this dualistic idea of the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, because he couldn't or wouldn't reconcile the attributes that are clearly displayed in both places. But what's strange here, I always have found these types of objections very, very arrogant in that if we're going to assume that there is a God, then what does that itself entail? And many of the conversations I've had about this particular thing have had to start with, okay, well, if there is a God, let's talk about his attributes. Because one of those that's going to come up is omniscience, omnipresence. And those are some of the two larger operatives in the resolution of this understanding of moral inconsistencies, is that we can only judge what we can see. And we look at things very superficially as human beings without realizing in the moment when something happens that we find to be distasteful, that God knows more than we do. And that death in his economy isn't the end, it's just the means to an end. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. There's every reason to believe that God doesn't view the part of our lives that we live in our physical bodies the same way that we do. That's just scratching the surface. We we assume that anytime someone's life ends, that it is... Um, just this terrible action, but it's from a very humanistic point of view. 
So we don't have the same perspective as God. We have a fallen perspective that looks at the world through a naturalistic, materialistic lens because we're in a physical body. And if it were only humans involved, we would be correct. And we would always be upset about a human being being responsible for mass death. It's interesting that while God indeed does take these actions, humans exercising the power of life and death has actually been radically curtailed in Scripture and in the laws of most countries. Men themselves don't seem to have the appropriate levels of judgment in order to mete out such judgment on that scale. It's only the judges and state who have been empowered to make these decisions, and even then in a very careful manner. All of these checks and balances, we have a hard enough time passing our own appropriate judgment on ourselves, let alone passing judgment on God. So lacking the perspective of eternity, we're incapable of passing moral judgment upon God in any rational manner. Yet since our perspective is the only one that we have and we don't have a divine comprehension, we judge with what we have. This inevitably leads to a reactionary perspective instead of a rational one. Improper evaluation of such events is, you know, i.e., I cannot determine how to reconcile these events that I see attributed to God with what I expect God to do and be. Therefore, there must be a contradiction somewhere showing that God is morally flawed. But proper evaluation of what can be known of God is that he's the creator. He owns everything. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He doesn't do things because they're right. They're right because he does them. He's the standard. He knows everything, including what's in everybody's heart. He knows all futures, and he loves every person more than we can comprehend personally and gave his life for everybody. He's shown judging the world and ending lives of many at, at, at once several times throughout Scripture. So the real question is, can those things be reconciled? And I would say absolutely. It means that God is operating with a data set that's different than we are and from a far superior perspective than we have. It doesn't mean we get to say that God thinks our lives are worthless or treats them in a manner that speaks to that. Far from it. Simply because the meaning and motive of what God does in these situations is not immediately apparent to us does not mean we get to assign our own motive to him and then pretend he's a monster or that he is morally inconsistent with himself. For instance, God's faithfulness to his covenant people required sometimes that he take such steps. He had to prevent people from violating the covenant or restore people to the covenant. And this is the expectation he himself set, as opposed to someone stepping in, looking at his actions in faithfulness to his other promises and pretending that that constitutes a moral inconsistency. His commitment to bring a redeemer countenanced that those who sought to forestall or corrupt this path would be removed. So we can be confident that God would not take such a drastic action if it were not warranted. And that, to me, is the kernel of the issue. So rather than exercising ill-formed questions, in my understanding, we should seek a perspective that allows God to pass judgment without question. He is God, after all, and we are not. So good. And for our listeners, we know we've given a lot of information. We've gone over than what we normally do in time on this podcast, but it, it really goes to show how important of a, a topic this is. And again, with podcasts, of course, you could download this and you could re-listen to it and you could take notes because this is some some quality information. But but before we wrap up our time, there's, there's one more question and I'll direct this to you, Joe. Um, and, and it really is about the future. 
and it kind of connects with the question I asked you a little bit earlier about the the antiquity of this book. But can we trust the New Testament, specifically Revelation and other aspects of of the epistles, and even Jesus's uh, declarations in the Gospels, to predict the future? Can the New Testament be a reliable guide in understanding? where history is going. Yes, it can, because God is eternal, and he's the one who inspired the New Testament. They're his words, and if you have words coming from an eternal God, and when I say eternal, it means that past, present, and future are wrapped up into eternity. That means God knows the past, the present, and future, just like you and I know the present or the past. He is that certain about it. There is no past, present, and future, though he knows what it is, to God. And that's what we are dealing with when we look at the scriptures. And if that's the case, then he can speak to the future just as certain as we can speak to the past. In fact, there was a book um, that was written some 25 years ago by Andre Cole. Some of our listeners might have even read it. It was called Mind Games, and he did his research and analysis of the prognosticators, the psychics, the astrologers, and so forth. And he came to a certain percentage of success, and he compared it with that success of the Bible. He said that the Bible is 100% correct and successful in all things that it predicts for the future, whereas the fortune tellers, the psychics, and so forth, are 90% failures. And when you compare the two, it is just not even close. And the 10% that do come to pass are more like 50-50 questions, like who's going to win the Super Bowl uh, when you look into the nature of their prognostications and so forth. But we have this amazing feature called prophecy that God knows the future and the New Testament is. I mean, you can even look back into the Old Testament and you find, you know, that Jesus was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5, 2, and you look to Matthew 2, and you you see its fulfillment. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49, it was said there, and you can see that in the New Testament, he was from the tribe of Judah. He's from the house of David, it was prophesied, that he'd be born of a virgin, that he'd be riding on a donkey into Jerusalem in the book of Zechariah. It was all fulfilled on the pages of Matthew. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We see its fulfillment in the New Testament. He would be the cleanser of the temple, according to Malachi 3. He'd be rejected by his own countrymen, the Jews, in Psalm 118, fulfilled in 1 Peter 2. So you, you have all these great fulfillments that demonstrate that the Bible is well ahead of its time. It knows the future. And it's only because of the one who inspired the text, and that is God is eternal, and he sees past, present, and future, just like you and I see the past or the present. Mm, Beautiful answer. Thanks for that, Joe. Well, gentlemen, as is our custom, we always leave our readers with some book recommendations so they could delve into this topic and subject more. So let's start with you, Luke. Um, What books would you recommend uh, listeners, uh, maybe someone out there is a skeptic and they're going, you know, you guys made some good points, but I've got to investigate this some more. What what books would you encourage them to pick up and read 
to demonstrate that the New Testament is reliable? Number one, I'd like to recommend a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, not because it deals with theological concepts, but because it really looks closely at what so many people worship as science and how science itself has changed and why it has changed and what typically causes that to happen, the methods. So many people who object to the Bible, particularly on the part that I spoke to about the scientific reliability, are putting so much faith in the methods that have been created by men, while at the same time objecting by to anything else that has the involvement of human beings and also in some way connects to the divine, without really acknowledging the paucity of the methods that we ourselves use to try to ascertain what we're looking at. So it's a good read on a number of levels. Secondly, From God to Us by Geisler and Nix. I think it's one of the best short reads when it comes to putting things on the bottom shelf for the the creation of, the inspiration of, and the transmission of, translation of Scripture. It's a great read. It's a great reference book. So those are my two. Great recommendations. Joe, how about you? Any books you would recommend for our readers on the reliability of the New Testament? Yes, uh, you can look at Gary Habermas, who's out of Liberty University. He has written a book, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, and he has put together some fascinating uh, historical features that revolve around the gospel record. And if you want to venture out into the Old Testament too, you can go to Kenneth Kitchen's book uh, that usually uh, focuses in on the, the aspects of reliability in the Old Testament. I'll throw on a couple myself. And, you know, this this first one is not necessarily talking about the reliability of Scripture in the sense of looking at its history, but it is addressing the difficult parts of the Bible that many critics like to use to say that the Bible is either morally inconsistent or historically inconsistent. And that is, again, Norm Geisler's When Critics Ask. It goes book by book through the Bible, um, obviously covering the New Testament, and he addresses those difficult passages where someone may say, well, hey, here in Acts 5, or, you know, the gospel narratives are different, and and he addresses them them head on. So I'd recommend that. I would also say some some introductory books would be F.F. Bruce's The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? It's a great introduction to the topic. And even Paul Barnett, um, has a, an introductory book called Is the New Testament Reliable? And they're both introductory. So I would recommend, obviously, any of these books we're, we're, uh, we're discussing. But for those who want to dig deeper into it, there's a handful of books for you. Well, Joe, Luke, we went over than we normally do. But as we said at the beginning, this is a vitally important topic. So I thank you for all your answers and journeying with us here on Paradis. Thanks so much, uh, Brian and Luke. Good to be with you both again. Always a great time. Thanks for having us on, Brian. Well, join us next time as we continue our discussion answering the question, is Jesus God? Until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.